This episode of the Internet History Podcast is sponsored by MetaLab. Their slogan is MetaLab, we make interfaces. For over a decade, MetaLab has helped some of the world's top companies and entrepreneurs build products that millions of people use every day. You probably didn't realize it at the time, but odds are you've used an app that they've helped design or build, like Slack or Facebook Messenger or Amazon's Cloud Drive application. MetaLab wants to help you take your idea and turn it into the next billion-dollar app. They're one of the few agencies in the world that can take a product idea from end-to-end, from napkin sketch to real shipped product. Learn more by going to MetaLab.co. That's MetaLab.co. My thanks to MetaLab for sponsoring the Internet History Podcast. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. As you'll hear in this episode, I thought most people knew who Claude Shannon was. In the pantheon of cool people who made the modern information era, he's right up there. But maybe he has been a bit underappreciated. That's why I read with great delight the book A Mind at Play, How Claude Shannon Invented the Information Age. Today, we're going to talk about Shannon's life with the authors of that biography, Jimmy Sony and Rob Goodman. Especially you software engineers out there, if you don't know who Claude Shannon is, get educated. You owe your livelihood to this man. Enjoy this conversation about the father of information theory with authors Jimmy Sony and Rob Goodman, and buy their book, A Mind at Play, How Claude Shannon Invented the Information Age. There's a link in the show notes. Jimmy Sony, Rob Goodman. Thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot. Uh, we're going to talk about your great book, um, but we're, we'll plug that at the end. We're actually here to talk about a great man, Claude Shannon. Mm-hmm. Um, let's do the simplest thing and begin at the beginning. Um, he's of my wife's people, the Northern Michiganders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but also, actually, a way into this, I think, is, you know, his childhood hero was... Um, Thomas Edison, and I feel like in the mid-20th century, this idea that the inventors and the tinkerers came from the Midwest was sort of like common, you know, knowledge or whatever, and now everyone thinks that the smart people are on the coasts or whatever, but he, Shannon really comes, at least, you know, based on my reading, from this tradition of the Midwestern tinkerer, inventor, you know, sort of on the on the planes or whatever, like making their own gadgets to, to, to make life easier, that sort of thing. He, he absolutely. I, I actually think there's no Claude Shannon in... there's None of Claude Shannon's achievements, I would hypothesize, would have happened had he not been born in a place whose primary purpose was the making of physical things. I like to think that if he grew up in you know Boston or New York, a more cosmopolitan place, he would have been exposed to a lot of ideas but he wouldn't have had this very practical sense of engineering that he did. You know, this is somebody who grew up, you know, he, he made a, um, uh, a, a barbed wire telephone network that he could communicate with a friend using Morse code. 
he and his friend also built a barnyard elevator in their in one of their friend's backyard so that they could use it to go up and down. Uh, they both survived. Um, <laughs> this was a town that was very practical. His dad was a you know was a lawyer, but he was also you know an undertaker, and he made caskets and he made furniture. Uh, so this was a place where there was just a lot of building going on. And Claude Shannon had an unusual interest in building. He also took some heart in the fact that his grandfather was an inventor and a tinkerer, you know, from the Midwest, and he had built an improvement on the washing machine that was actually patented. It was uh, Shannon family's first patent. Uh, and he was a distant, you know, relative of Thomas Edison, who he just admired and, and you know, thought the world of. Um, he would only find that out later, uh, interestingly enough, but it was an important part of his, his personal history. So I do think that there is a way in which, you know, you take... You take Clad Shannon out of the Midwest, and I'm not sure that you get any of the later achievements. And I think it was a big part of his identity. Uh, Rob, what year specifically was he born? Um, 1916. 16. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, so right, the you know the the airplanes brand new, automobiles are brand new, um, and, and and in Michigan, you know, people sometimes call Detroit was the Silicon Valley of the early 20th century. So he is in this milieu of. Um, new technologies coming to the fore of everyday life. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is not just a part of his childhood, but it's a part of his undergraduate education as well. So when he goes off to uh, the University of Michigan, which is just a uh, really outstanding public institution, um, he is immediately plugged into an engineering community. This is in the, uh, uh, in the um, uh, early 30s. Uh, he's plugged into a community of, of uh, an extremely well-funded engineering department that works on everything from uh, labs, uh, testing uh, naval ships, and uh, modeling uh, hydrodynamics to uh, early studies in the transmission of uh, information, electricity, and, uh, and also in his logical uh, philosophical curriculum that he takes in some of his humanities classes to uh, the basics of Boolean algebra, which of course mm-hmm. he makes a tremendous amount of hay at uh, at MIT uh, later on in his career. So the fact that he doesn't just have an upbringing that's structured around tinkering and playing with things and solving math puzzles, but he's able to immediately plug into a community of engineers and like-minded people in an institution like the University of Michigan, um, where he's able to major in both math and engineering and, and, and bridge these two, bridge the uh, uh, more abstract discipline of math with the more hands-on discipline of engineering. Um, that's sort of essential to who Claude Shannon is and the interest that he's going to combine uh, for the rest of his career. Right, because that's sort of the, the key part of the story is, is combining that mathematical mind with the mechanical mind and proving to the world that they're basically a unified way of looking at it. But, mm-hmm. yeah. um, so, all right, so you, spe- you mentioned the two degrees at Michigan, electrical engineering and, and mathematics. Do you get a sense that he, he was closer to one or the other, like, or was it all the same to him, kind of like we're saying? You know, I think if you had to sort of gun to your head, you had to choose, it would probably be engineering. Mm. Um, you know, the, the engineers, even to this day, see Claude, the electrical engineers see him as their patron saint, their hero. Um, he's looked a little bit askance from the mathematicians. Mm. And part, part of the reason is that in many of the papers that he published, they felt like they were insufficiently rigorous from a mathematical perspective, and he took a lot of a lot of heat from that. Now, the irony is later, when mathematicians go back and dot the I's and cross the T's, it turns out the steps that Claude Shannon may have appeared to skip over, he had just done in his head, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you had to, you'd say he's probably more engineer than mathematician. Um, however, 
you know, the work he's doing is theoretically very rigorous. Uh, he, he, he's one of these folks who could, he probably could think about the 20th step and not really worry too much about sort of steps 1 to 19. Mm-hmm. And that, that, again, it doesn't endear him to, endear him to the mathematicians. He's much more of a practical, hard-headed engineering type. Um, but ultimately, it was all part of this spirit of, of play. It was all part of this basic sense that he was out to solve puzzles and problems. And one of the things that we've heard from people who have read the book who are in engineering or computer science or math or related disciplines is that the book evokes for them this sort of sense that like he was there to solve puzzles. And that puzzle could be, how do you build a robot to play chess? That puzzle could be, how do you transmit huge amounts of information? Uh, and that puzzle could be, you know, um, how do you make a trumpet breathe fire? And oh. for Claude Shannon, all of those things were equivalently, oh, there was, there were, there were, those were puzzles of equal interest. Or roulette wheels or the <laughs> physics of juggling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so let's, let's, uh, let's take him up to MIT and um, the differential analyzer, um, maybe even describe what that was. And... Yeah, this is fascinating. It's one of the things that we delved into in talking about Claude Shannon's earlier career was his work with analog computers. Um, and it struck me when I, before I knew much about the topic, you know, what's an analog computer? Computers are supposed to be digital. Well, it, it turns out that before digital computers were a thing, um, there were tremendous machines that were the size of rooms. It looked like in the pictures we saw of them uh, preserved from the 1930s of giant foosball tables, essentially, um, with shafts that would rotate laterally and uh, gears that would uh, interlock. And the idea was the machine would take input by reading a graph that you would uh, trace with a stylus. And after the, uh, the gears and the shafts would uh, rotate a prescribed number of times, it would output um, on another pin that was attached to an unwinding spool of paper um, the answer, which was also in graphical form. So the way these analog computers would work is essentially by acting out the equations they were describing. Uh, and that's essentially what's their analog. Uh, Vannevar Bush, uh, who was uh, the mastermind of these analog computers at MIT and Claude Shannon's uh, really important early mentor, said that they were analog in a real sense, uh, in the idea that as long as they were acting on an equation, they were essentially um, acting as a miniature copy of the thing they were describing. So you could use an analog computer, for instance, to figure out uh, the forces that would act on a bridge uh, in a certain amount of wind speed, and how much wind speed could the bridge take before it would uh, buckle and collapse. Well, the computer is actually acting out in a reduced way, uh, the bridge and the wind on it, the force of gravity and so on, um, and acting essentially as an analogy for what was happening to that bridge. Uh, this was a sort of pretty easily appli- easy application, but as these computers got more sophisticated from the late 20s into the uh, mid-30s, before they get replaced by digital computers, um, they were doing things like tracking the development of the solar system, um, tracking uh, the forces acting on atomic nuclei, and also in something that really interested Claude Shannon, um, tracking the capacity of the nation's uh, telephone and telegraph network, how much... Uh, uh, information could it transmit before it would uh, over uh, overburden its capacity. So these are all the things that you can do with a computer that is acting out equations rather than uh, representing them in the way that a digital computer does. So Claude Shannon comes to MIT as a master's student and then later as a PhD student uh, to work as an assistant in the analog computing lab under Vannevar Bush uh, at MIT. Um, and Shannon's main responsibility is working on the, uh, the control box, the, uh, the box of switches, the digital component of the analog computer that enables the analog computer to uh, basically reconfigure the equations it's performing in the act of performing them. So rather than in the earlier models, you'd actually have to go in and take apart the computer every time you'd want it to act out a new equation and reassemble it. Um, 
over time, Bush and his assistants had developed a way of uh, using switches to uh, change the capacity of the machine as it's working. So Shannon is in particular in charge of this very sensitive piece of the machinery. But he begins to think of an analogy of his own uh, between the switches uh, that are directing this giant computing machine, uh, the switches that go on, off, one, zero, yes, no, the binary switches, and um, the binaries that happen in Boolean logic, the, uh, the yeses uh, and nos, ones and zeros of Boolean logic. And the tremendous leap that he makes by combining these two very separate fields at the time, the field of mathematical logic and the field of switching or computing, is that you can use switches to act out any kind of logical statement you can represent in Boolean logic. And because Boolean logic can represent any kind of logical statement, um, Shannon has essentially proved in this tremendous uh, master's thesis that um, you, can use, uh, you can use switches um, and connections that represent things like and or 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 if uh, or, or lights that light up to represent yes or no, your answers to these equations. You can use these basic components that anyone could rig up in a telephone system or a computer, or a very, very simple uh, binary components to calculate the results of any kind of logical statement uh, in, in ones and zeros. So Claude Shannon is essentially the person who shows, down to the metal as we say, mm. that uh, you can use um, uh, switching, uh, you can use a system of ones and zeros to imitate thought, to, to resolve logical equations. And that, that's the basis of all digital computing. And then the cool thing, the historical irony, is that he figures this out by working on an analog machine. Right. But he actually, uh, in the process, um, makes an important contribution to making those kinds of machines obsolete over time. You know, that's, it's, it's worth underlining that, that he does this on an analog machine. Anybody that's learned to program any language, you, you, you very, it's all logic-based, and, and that's the sort of mode that your brain has to get into. So the fact that he's the guy that puts this together and everything has flown from that is like, that, that's, it's worth underlining that that's the basic wow that we're talking about here. It's, it's actually, there's a couple funny elements of it. One is, he's only 21 years old mm. when he makes his connection, which mm. is just, should make any one of us who have <laughs> ever been graduate students really just sad about our, ourselves, right? I mean, this is, uh, someone called this the most important master's thesis ever written. Um, it's also interesting because his later paper, the one he's really famous for, you know, he's known as the father of information theory. And that paper was published in 1948. And there are a good many people who we've met who knew who Claude Shannon was, knew about the 1948 paper, and almost had sort of no idea or only mm. a vague sense of this earlier work. Mm -hmm. And you just gotta, you just sort of have to pause and say to yourself, like, that's just incredible, given that all digital computing flows from, you know, this, this particular paper. Um, it's also the same year that Alan Turing uh, publishes his famous paper, and so that year is is probably the most consequential one of the most consequential in in internet history um the vanover bush um is sort of his mentor and sort of guides his early career because he even he, he takes some time out to work on genetics just as you do or whatever <laughs> but um did he have an idea of what he wanted to do with his career, or was he sort of guided into various corners and then he sort of found his channel? And yeah, he was he was I would say unclear about what he wanted mm. to do with his career, and it's it's interesting because he doesn't have or wear any of the kind of overweening ambition of a mm -hmm. lot of mathematicians of that era, right? The, the easiest contrast I think is somebody like John Nash, mm -hmm. um, and he's a subject of a beautiful mind. And John Nash knew that he wanted to be a famous mathematician. Right. right? Uh, 
And well, like Nash is like also a guy that goes up to Einstein and mm-hmm. introduces himself. Yeah. Versus you know Shannon is just occasionally waving at him across yeah. the cameras yeah. or whatever. It, but it's interesting because Van Bush, Vannevar Bush, is a really he's an important force in Shannon's life because what he encourages Shannon to do is not over specialize. What he encourages him to do is become a very good and capable generalist. And so one summer, while he's at MIT doing his graduate work, Van Bush sends Claude Shannon to Cold Spring Harbor, New York, to work on genetics. And like you said, it's just a complete non-sequitur from the rest of his career. But he manages in a summer's time to write a paper that becomes the basis for his PhD thesis that's an algebra of genetics. Now, this isn't any kind of great breakthrough, and there's some debate about how valuable the paper actually was. But what it did show is that Shannon could be dropped into a completely unfamiliar field and use the tools that he has to make heads and tails of it and to potentially make some important contributions. The other thing that happens that summer is both Van Bush and uh, his advisor at Cold Spring, a woman named Barbara Stoddard Burks, recognize that Shannon has unusually, he has unusual intellectual horsepower, that he's incredibly smart. Uh, uh, Barbara writes to Van Bush saying, to advise a youth like Shannon is difficult, is it not? Um, because people just don't know what to do with someone who is this this brilliant. And there are signs of, of earlier intelligence, but this is the first real, this time at MIT is the first real crystallization of the fact that Claude Shannon isn't like everybody around him. Um, to get back to your earlier question, he bounces around a bit. You know, mm-hmm. he does his undergraduate work at the University of Michigan, ha- sort of happens into a post at MIT that leads to the master's, that leads to the PhD, gets a fellowship at Princeton, which gets a bit diverted by the war, but he really doesn't have a sense that he's like on track to be X or on track to be Y. Um, it's one of the parts of his story that we think is frankly most endearing. Like he's, yeah. not, he's not careerist. He's not somebody who, you know, I'm going to publish this and publish that and publish that. If anything, he's the, he's the anti-careerist. He yeah. kind of floats and picks his problems and then lets the problems guide his career. So Princeton, um, you know, at this time, as you say, the war is coming up and there's this flood of refugees great minds from Europe that are literally seeking refuge from the Nazis, and um, Princeton sets up this great program, come come here mm-hmm. and, and do whatever you want to do. So he is at Princeton rubbing shoulders with literally Einstein and von Neumann and, and people like this, right? Um, so tell me about Princeton into Bell Labs and things like that. Yeah, so we'll tell you our favorite Einstein story. I'm really glad we got this in the book. We, we got it from two different sources, so it can go in the book. Um, so Shannon is delivering a lecture at, at Princeton um, on some of his work, uh, sort of I think the very early rudiments of what will become information theory. And about halfway through the lecture, uh, Albert Einstein walks in the back door of the lecture hall, sits down for a second, he leans over to someone uh, and whispers in the guy's ear, and then uh, heads out the door again. And then immediately after, Shannon, of course, runs up to the back row and finds this guy that Einstein had spoken to and said, oh my god, what did Albert Einstein think about my lecture? The guy said, well, he just wanted directions to the men's room. <laughs> so, in the other version, uh, Einstein was curious. Um, he heard there were free cookies in one of the lecture right. halls, was out for the cookies. Yeah. So either way, um, the, it, it gets to the point that, that Shannon was put in this environment where he was rubbing shoulders with um, some intellectual greats of the era, but he never really connected with them. Uh, there, there are people also like uh, Hermann Weil who were there, and von Neumann who would develop more... Uh, respectful relationship with Shannon later on, but at this time, and none of these people took much of an interest other than the fact that he was on the staff there. Um, and part of that, I think, was because these were some of the grand figures of European physics uh, in the um, early to mid-20th century. And Shannon was just, you know, as Jimmy had said earlier, um, 
he was much more of, a, of an engineering-oriented person, mm -hmm. much more of a tinkerer who was interested in practical problems, which uh, would prove to be really important, but at the same time didn't have the sort of intellectual prestige that some of these abstract uh, mathematicians or, uh, or um, people from the high school of uh, European physics uh, really cared about. So I, that meant that Shannon was a bit of an outlier in Princeton. Um, combined with this, he was also having a really difficult period in his life uh, for other reasons. So, so for the most part, we think that Shannon had a uh, lucky, fortunate, successful, happy life, uh, except for this period, uh, right around the beginning, uh, the, the late 30s, uh, 39, the U.S. entry into the war, um, in which a number of things converge to, uh, to put him in a period of a bit of a funk or a depression even. Um, one, he's not exactly sure where his work is going. Uh, like I mentioned, he's having trouble finding patrons and, and support and interest in his work. Um, two, uh, he has a first marriage that lasts for less, of a, less than a year before it fails. Um, uh, to a woman named Norman, Norma Labor, um, who is a, a wealthy uh, um, person from uh, New York, uh, very interested in politics and literature and uh, the Communist Party, and doesn't share a lot of Shannon's scientific interests. So it ended up being a, uh, a difficult match and, and breaks up after less than a year. On top of that, uh, Shannon can tell that the war is coming, and he's very afraid of being drafted. He said he's not uh, a very physically courageous guy. He doesn't want to get sent over to Europe or the Pacific to get shot at. And he also doesn't think he could contribute that much uh, by carrying a weapon that he could if he um, were able to contribute some of his math skills. So again, through his connections with people like Bush and also some of his previous work being a summer intern at Bell Labs, he's able to get um, a uh, posting essentially at Bell Labs working uh, as a uh, defense contractor and defense contract work using uh, his mathematical skills to solve some of these problems um, that the U.S. military was recruiting some of its mathematical minds to work on. And these were not, I think, in the scope of um, things, that the, things that the mathematicians had been working on. These were not the most challenging problems, but they were the problems they needed solving. So there were problems like uh, fire control, or essentially how do you use uh, probability and statistics to estimate the likely location of, a, of an aircraft so that you can figure out uh, the approximate location uh, you should shoot at it at mm -hmm. um, with an anti-aircraft gun. Or things like cryptography, which were a lot, which was a lot actually closer to Shannon's heart, because he had a lifelong interest in cracking codes and making codes and writing codes. Um, so these things bring him into the orbit of Bell Labs, and they also help to put his life back on track in a way, because he has a more stable professional setting. Um, he has a place that can support him in his uh, uh, more extracurricular interests. Uh, but again, the struggle at that point becomes um, the tension between the work that Shannon had to do, which was some of this uh, defense contracting work for the war effort, which he knew was important and a contribution, but not exactly where his heart was all of the time. A and the work that Shannon really wanted to do, which was the first inklings of his work towards uh, a comprehensive theory of information. So the neat thing that we found in looking through the archives and Shannon's papers at the Library of Congress was the letter uh, that he writes to Bush um, uh, as he's leaving MIT, uh, when he first says, I'm beginning to get interested in the concept of intelligence, which was what, what people called information in those days. Um, and and the, the things that uh, unite the properties of transmission of intelligence from TVs to radios to telegraphy to cryptography, and these were areas that were entirely distinct until Shannon pointed out what they had in common. Uh, these were each an individual field of study that people would study in terms of their physical qualities. You know, a, a radio wave um, is a different physical quality than, say, uh, the, the information embedded in your DNA, in your genetic code. Uh, but Shannon is the person who thinks about all these things in terms of uh, their capacity to bear information. And he's putting the inklings together at Bell Labs, but, but the, the dilemma in his life is that he can't always get adequate time to work during his office hours. So he's really 
burning the candle at both ends during the war. Uh, he's working during the day on uh, the war effort, and he's working on weekends and, and nights and evenings uh, whenever he can, writing out scraps of what will become his, his magnum opus on information theory uh, whenever he has a spare moment. Yeah, I, I actually want to come back to that notion that he sort of comes up with information theory as a side gig. Mm-hmm. Sort of. um, but uh, we gotta we got to hit the Turing story. I love the anecdote that the reason that the British send a Turing to the U.S. is because they kind of don't think that we're smart enough <laughs> to do the stuff with them that they've done. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, tell me about uh, um, yeah, meeting Turing. You know, it's an incredible story. Um, there's a lot of mutual skepticism on both sides. The Americans don't think the Brits are handling the war effort well, and the Brits don't think the Americans are handling the war effort well. And one place of particular concern is phone calls, communication, transatlantic signals. What, how are the two sides communicating, and can and how will they prevent the Germans from listening in to those communications? And the Germans did successfully break uh, comms between the U.S. and Great Britain and learned a fair amount of information. So Shannon actually works on a system uh, called Sig Sally that is one of the systems used by FDR to communicate with Winston Churchill. And in the course of that, he comes into contact with a visiting Alan Turing. Turing is sent by the Brits essentially to, to kick the tires on this system and others. So he's traveling to laboratories around the United States for, I think, a six-month period. And he actually gets stopped at immigration, and there's this big kerfuffle. He has to, he has to sort of wait until someone confirms that he's supposed to be there. There's all kinds of back and forth. He's pretty upset about it. Um, but he finds his way to Bell Labs. And it's at Bell Labs, in one of those great moments of, of you know, technological history, that Alan Turing and Claude Shannon become friends. Uh, they have tea. We're, we, we found some accounts having tea every day in the Bell Labs cafeteria, talking to each other about everything that had nothing to do with their work. Because they're actually working both on classified projects, so they're not allowed to talk about mm-hmm. cryptography and code breaking, cryptographic analysis. But that frees them up to talk about all kinds of great stuff, like, you know, can a computer be made to think? Mm-hmm. What is the nature of the mind? What is the nature of consciousness? Mm-hmm. Right? These are fantastic questions. And it's, it's, to people who, you know, nerd out on this stuff, it's pretty incredible to think about Alan Turing and Claude Shannon sitting there having tea talking about things like early computing. Well, and uh, the beginnings of AI theory. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they, they end up actually, what's, what's, what's also interesting is neither of these guys are particularly, you know, they're not social creatures. Uh, they're introverts. They, they enjoy their own company. Uh, they are social, and Turing is so socially awkward, mm-hmm. Shannon to some degree. But to think that these two kind of found each other is a really incredible thing. They actually also, we have a report that shows that Turing was one of the only people to visit Shannon at his home in the West Village. Mm. Um, and so they're, they're more than just sort of work buddies. You know, they're hanging out. Uh, yeah, and yeah. It's, it's kind of incredible to think about a time in New York when Turing and Shannon are, are you know, out, out on the town. Um, but it's, it, they, they keep up the friendship. They stay in correspondence. They reconnect after the war effort. Uh, where Shannon and his wife are visiting England and they go and visit Turing's home. And without missing a beat, Turing brings Shannon down to the basement and they start playing on an early computer uh, and then sort of thinking about it and talking about it. And so there, it's, it's an amazing moment in the history and it's one that you know, we were pretty, pretty astonished by. It's also what speaks to the kind of place Bell Laboratories was at that time. It was a significant defense contractor, a place that housed great minds, 
uh, like Shannon, like Turing, and you know, it's just one of those uh, one of those incredible moments in that story that that uh, was was fun to research and, and more fun to write about. Um, before we do come back to the the big theory, um, the work that he does in cryptography, um, what's the importance of that generally to that field? Well, to the field of cryptography, maybe not quite as much. Uh, you know, some people read Shannon's work, uh, Mathematical Theory of Cryptography After the War, and said mm -hmm. it, was, it was sort of in the spirit of Shannon thinking, what can I do for the war effort that would look impressive? Uh, <laughs> it comes out after the war um, is, is complete. And by comes out, I mean it was released into the depths of the intelligence bureaucracy <laughs> and maybe five people read it. Mm -hmm. But it, it was interesting theoretically. Apparently what Shannon does is he proves the existence of a theoretically unbreakable code uh, using something called the one-time pad system. He didn't invent, but he proves that if you satisfy some very stringent conditions, you can have a code that is literally impossible to crack. But the more interesting connection is that by thinking about cryptography and thinking about the questions that cryptographers care about, uh, redundancies in languages, um, character and word and letter frequencies, um, Shannon is also thinking about information. Uh, he says that there's a natural link between what it means to conceal a message and what it means to send a message. They're essentially uh, converses of exactly the same process. Uh, so when someone asked him in a later interview, um, uh, did your work on cryptography inspire your work on information theory or vice versa, uh, I said, well, you know, it's really just one big flow of ideas right. from one subject to the other. They were completely linked. So I think the import of his work in cryptography is not uh, for any new codes he developed, but for the fact that it got him thinking along the lines would lead to a breakthrough in, in information theory. And, and I, I was just going to say, by the way, that, that again, his earlier breakthrough in Boolean logic and switching was, it came about because there were very few people who had uh, toeholds in both fields. And again, there were very few people who had toeholds in the field of uh, cryptography and uh, the transmission of information. So the fact that Shannon could come up with these inventive, innovative, uh, frankly odd connections between fields uh, was one of the keys to his success as a thinker. Well, and I was going to say, and in a similar vein, the work that he does say on the, the tele telephone networks about signal and noise and things mm -hmm. like that, where again, it's a practical problem, but then he's thinking about it in, in theore theoretical ways that it's all connected. Absolutely. Yeah, he, he also, it's really interesting about the cryptography because he ends up becoming one of the people who's recognized around the world as one of the leading experts on cryptography. And that in, actually gets invited to advise the early NSA uh, on how it's going to be built, what it's going to do. And it's, for anybody else, I think, getting invited by the nation's leading kind of defense and national security folks to come and join audiences in Washington, D.C., where you're meeting with generals and you're meeting with you know, the heads of departments would be a pretty incredible moment. For Shannon, this is such a bore. He just doesn't want to do it. He's got all sorts of things that he wants to do. He tries to weasel his way out of going to these meetings in D.C. And finally, Bell Laboratories just says, look, you've got to go. So he attends one meeting, does, his, does this song and dance. And then I think he, the record shows that he skipped a couple of other meetings. He only attended half a day. He would find ways to get out of it. And this just, again, speaks to the fact that this was somebody who um, was not driven to a career as a famous and illustrious scientist or scientific advisor. Uh, he was really pure, looking for sort of curiosity for its own sake. The other lasting import, I think, of the cryptography paper is that there are some people in the cryptocurrency community who look up to and admire Shannon's work because part of what they're trying to do is, you know, in a way, build unbreakable codes, build unbreakable mm -hmm. systems. And he, he does have one of the more important proofs in that space. So he's still a bit of a, there's still now a sort of renewed interest in his work there because of the cryptocurrency movement. 
All right, so let's get to um, the chapter title you guys use is The Bomb. Um, so as, as we said, he's working on what we now know as information theory almost in his spare time, almost as his hobby, although he wouldn't think of it that way because it's all, it's all tied together for him. Um, but explain to me how after the war he's now able to to focus on this more as his main intellectual pursuit. Well, it's not so much that he's able to focus on it as main intellectual pursuit. What he does is over the course of 10 years, right, 10 years from 1938 to 1948, he is thinking about the fundamental properties of all kinds of communication. So, you know, a, more, a simpler way to say that is what, what is common in someone's voice and in a snatch of Morse code and in a picture and in a song what do those things share in common? And it was thought right up until Shannon that they shared nothing in common, that they were mm-hmm. fundamentally different things. It was also thought that you couldn't find ways to encode, compress, and transmit those things, right? And what Shannon, over the course of 10 years, discovers is that, no, there's actually fundamental properties that are similar. And he, he reduces all of those down to the unit that we know as the bit, mm-hmm. um, which actually, funny enough, he had called the binary digit. And then I think it was at a cafeteria conversation at Bell Labs that somebody said, well, you should just shorten it to the bit. Uh, so <laughs> it's a unit of measurement and it's, you know, it, it's something people can work with. Um, but he doesn't actually work on information theory full time. What he does is publish in two parts a paper called A Mathematical Theory of Communication in the Bell Systems Technical Journal. And so Bell Laboratories runs, among other things, its own academic journal. Mm. And so in the fall of 1948, uh, unbeknownst to basically everyone, Claude Shannon drops this two-part paper. And part of the reason why we called the chapter The Bomb is because one of his colleagues said uh, it came as a bomb, meaning he had spoken not a word of it to anyone. No one really knew that he was working on it. Uh, this was the we, we we like to think that Shannon's information theory paper is the is history's greatest side hustle, <laughs> like it's it's something he literally worked on that had no connection to his Bell Laboratories work, um, but he manages to come at the essence of information, uh, and then by the way to show how you can compress, encode, and transmit it flawlessly uh, over you know vast distances. Um, it's at the time even at the time it's considered a breakthrough. Even its practical uses are not immediately apparent, but it's the kind of thing that even people reading it today recognize that the paper has an elegance about it, has a thought about it that was just leagues ahead of where anybody was. At well, the time. and at the time, people immediately recognize that it's really impressive too, even if it takes a while for the applications. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the uh, that was the immediate reaction was mm-hmm. that we're not sure at what point we're going to be able to find the codes that Shannon proved must exist. Mm-hmm. But the very fact that he proved the existence of these uh, these codes that allowed the maximal uh, compression and error-free transmission of information within these certain parameters, the fact that he proved they must be out there was just a stunning accomplishment. Uh, another quotation we loved from another um, engineer uh, said that Shannon's paper was like waking up one morning and finding marble on your doorstep. Mm. Uh, no one really carved it yet, but the raw material was there, and it was carved into place over the next uh, several decades. So that was the that was the challenge in the immediate aftermath of Shannon's paper: is what are we going to do with this, and is it possible to uh, uncover and piece together these codes that Shannon proved must be out there? But the very fact that he had laid the foundation and had proved their existence 
um, was at the time recognized for the accomplishment that it was. I saw a video of you guys at uh, Google, and um, the interviewer tried to get you to like sum it up and give like an E equals MC square. I'm not going to do that because I don't think that that's. But if possible, could you explain on some sort of a layman way why that's so fundamental to modern digital telecommunications, everything. Yeah, I I, I can take a crack at that. We've been trying. So whenever anyone, (laughs) in various ways, I'll I'll tell you what we've done after a year of talking about this this, uh, paper. Um, When we try to explain to people um, why Shannon's important, if they know nothing about him, I say, well, he invented the bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, He invented the basic unit of information. And so the bit is, essentially it has to do with the probability of receiving a certain message. He says that Information uh, resolves our uncertainty. So information that, or a piece of information that resolves more uncertainty because it's chosen from a wider set of symbols, because its choice is kind of more random and resolves more noise, is the most informative kind of symbol you can send. So he says that uh, one bit, a good way of understanding one bit, is thinking of a coin that's fair and has heads and tails. Uh, You flip that coin, it has a 50-50 chance of landing heads or tails. And that coin, before you flip it, in itself as a coin, carries one bit of information. It's a storage device for one bit. But the interesting thing he says is that as the coin gets more or less weighted towards one side or the other, as it becomes uh, 60, 70, 80% likely to land on the head side, the informativeness of that coin decreases um, simply because it's more certain that the coin is always going to land heads. So what information has to do with is the idea that the more random the outcome is, the more informative an information-bearing device or a message is. Um, so why, why is that important? It's important because it helps us start thinking about the probabilities that certain uh, messages are going to uh, cohere with certain other messages. So this is an insight he gets from cryptography, is that um, symbols and words and letters we send to each other have a certain kind of pull on other symbols and letters or words. So think about an image, for instance. Um, if you have static on your computer or TV screen, a white pixel is just as likely to appear next to a white pixel as it is next to a black pixel. The pixels are totally randomly distributed. And the interesting thing is, in Shannon's terms, that's the most informative picture you can get because it's totally random. And in mm-hmm. our terms, it's not informative because it doesn't have a lot of meaning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But as that picture takes on meaning, as it becomes a picture of, say, uh, Claude Shannon, um, white pixels are more likely to be found next to white pixels, and dark pixels are more likely to be found next to dark pixels. These pixels kind of have a pull and stickiness. Um, or in written communication, um, some words are more likely to follow uh, other words. So in Claude Shannon's favorite story uh, growing up, uh, The Gold Bug by Edgar Allan Poe, it's the story of how uh, a sort of amateur detective decodes a pirate's uh, message and finds a hidden treasure. Um, the uh, letters TH are very likely to be followed by an E. You mm-hmm. can Once you get the letters TH, you're very likely to figure out what symbol uh, stands for uh, E because the is much more likely than any other combination of letters uh, that uh, follow after a TH. So by understanding these things, these redundancies and patterns that languages fall into, you can then start to manipulate them, and you can come up with codes for, on the one hand, compressing things, for taking out those things that are more likely to, re- to occur um, all the time because uh, they're more predictable. On the other hand, for building in redundancy, for building in sorts of extra information that acts as a shield to your message. So uh, the way Shannon proved that you can get um, uh, theoretically flawless transmission or communication is he says you don't have to talk louder, you don't have to pump more information, or and not, excuse me, you don't have to pump more energy or strength or loudness into your signal 
you have to talk smarter, you have to encode it better by building in um, sorts of extra bits to that message that can take damage in the course of being transmitted from one point to another point and um, can protect your image from distortion in the process of transmission. So he says that it's actually possible to encode every message in such a way that it can get from point A to point B with 100% flawless accuracy um, uh, below a certain speed limit of transmission. And the speed limit that he says has to exist in any kind of transmission uh, shortly after the publication of the paper gets named as the Shannon limit. Um, and what he proves is that up to that Shannon limit, which differs depending on the kind of message you're sending and the medium you're sending across and so on, up to that limit, you can have 100% flawless, accurate communication. And that's the breakthrough that allows things like uh, web video and the internet right. and email and uh, being able to get directions to this uh, studio on my iPhone. All <laughs> these things are based on Shannon's insight that perfect transmission of information within those limits is possible. And that's the breakthrough um, that makes him so important to the world that we live in. And it all comes from breaking these things down, understanding a fundamental unit of information, which is the bit. And from that understanding of what actually information is as the resolution of uncertainty, all these other things follow. Well, and actually, you know, 20 years later when people like Bush um, are involved in the early ARPANET and things like that, they're literally building off of these ideas and putting them in place. The, 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 the original ARPANET, those four mm -hmm. nodes, are literally proving parts of these theories and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, in the interest of time, I kind of I kind of want to elide over. Just give me a, a two things: um, a sense of his personal life, because we, we talked about his um, his brief first marriage, but then he does have a more successful second marriage. He has children and things like that. Just him as a personal, as a guy. Yeah, he marries. His, his first marriage ends in divorce. Um, he moves to Bell Laboratories, where he's working and meets uh, Betty Moore, uh, who is a young, she's actually called a computer. Um, that's, <laughs> yeah, her, right. that's her job title, she, yes. she computes. Yes. And so she and others are referred to as computers. They do the computation for engineers at Bell Laboratories. Uh, he meets her, they very quickly fall in love, they bond over math, which she is very good at, and music, which they're both very talented at. And so this uh, love affair happens, they get married very, very quickly, and uh, eventually, move out to Massachusetts, to MIT. After his information theory paper is published, he spends a few more years at Bell Laboratories, but then MIT comes calling and says, you know, we'd love to have you as a tenured faculty member. So they start a family. Um, they have three children, and their family life can only be characterized as sort of whimsical and mathematical. Mm. Um, a couple of stories stuck out to us. One is that there were five Shannons, and they sat around, uh, I think it was a pentagonal or, a pentagonal or hexagonal table, and the way that they decided who would do the dishes was a probability game. They would wind up a robotic mouse, put it in the middle of the table, and whichever edge that mouse happened to drop off of, that was the person who did the dishes that night. Um, they had other just spontaneous moments of these sort of math moments. Uh, but it was a house that was really rich in music and mathematics, and it reflected their parents' passions. They, they all got into stock picking when the parents got excited about stocks. Uh, they used to have you know, sessions where they'd all play musical instruments together. Um, it, it, he had a, he had after his first marriage and after that depressive episode of Princeton, he he has a, a life that was very that was happy that was rich. Mm -hmm. He wasn't a tortured genius, right? Um, that's what I was going to say. And, and he was really it was one of these things. It's like remarkable. Like we kind of expect our geniuses to have these like very right. you know deep dark past, but he really really doesn't. He, he's a you know they have a wonderful life in Massachusetts. He is a homebody. He's a very simple guy. He doesn't like travel. 
Um, but his wife and, and his sister actually force him to, to go and accept honorary degrees and to travel the world. He collects awards for his entire life. Right. Some he decides is, are worth collecting. Some he just sort of ignores and leaves the envelopes where they are. Um, for Shannon, his personal life overlaps with his professional life toward the later part of, of you know the 60s and 70s and 80s because he becomes even more invested in tinkering, even more invested in building early computing machines, even more invested in questions of AI. He, once he does the information theory paper, he doesn't really contribute to the information theory right. field that much. Right. Um, but it's partly because you know he builds a two-story toy shop and decides that he's going to build and, and invest in, in his time and energy in building various devices. But his personal life was very happy, uh, and he, you know, by all accounts, he was he was somebody who just always had a new enthusiasm that he was bringing into his life and connected with a lot of a lot of incredible people. He taught at MIT the, the whole rest of his life? whole rest of his life, but taught is such a... <laughs> yeah, taught right. is such a, I think that probably exaggerates a little bit of what he was doing. He received two... Uh, he received a name chair at MIT. He was this kind of giant figure within American science, and people were expecting all kinds of great things of him. He arrives at MIT and realizes he's got no interest in being, you know, publisher, being on the publisher parish track. He's already got tenure, so he teaches and he does advise some graduate students. And we actually were able, we were lucky enough to talk to several of his graduate students. But he's not somebody who's like at MIT every day by 8 a.m. Yeah. grinding away at research. He is much more interested in pursuing broad questions at this point in his career. But MIT is where he spends uh, the remainder of his of his life, and, and they live in a house in Winchester, Massachusetts, that was actually owned by Thomas Jefferson's great granddaughter. Mm. It was modeled after Monticello, and it's the site of all kind for, for what I think is one of the great creative periods in his life. There are strict engineers and mathematicians who would sort of ask the question like, "Well, he just kind of hung up the jersey after the uh -huh. 1948 paper. What's the big deal?" But the truth is, you know, he builds devices that anticipate Deep Blue. He builds devices that anticipate the Apple Watch that you're wearing. Like, he, he builds all these incredible contraptions. And, yeah, they didn't appear in the pages of journals, but many of them are featured in museums around the world. And so I like to think of this period as very richly creative, even if it wasn't conventionally creative. And Bell Labs kept an office for him also for the rest of his life. They did, and I think they also kept him on the payroll. Yeah. Um, because, as one person put it, it, it would be a shame for someone of Shannon's stature to be penniless. Uh, we must continue to keep him on the payroll. And they kept the plaque on the door and everything. And uh, I think if, if you visit Bell Labs today, they still have his office uh, preserved in that way because he was one of, if not the most famous alum. Uh, and they just did, they didn't want to lose their association with him. He did have a bit of tension in his life when he was thinking about whether to stay or go. But what he realized was that a practical laboratory like Bell Labs was going to start to look down on somebody who showed up late, played chess, used his spare time to unicycle during in the hallways. Uh, he he think I think he had realized he was overstaying his welcome, and that those kinds of that those let's say those kinds of work habits were better tolerated at a university. Um, we spoke a little bit about this off air, or we're starting to, but. Um... What do you think of Claude Shannon's either legacy or is he is it is my perception wrong or does he feel like less well known than a Turing or some of these other information uh, founding fathers? I think I think he is. I mean, he's all, he's certainly less well known than uh, Turing and, and Turing Einstein. Has a, finding... Turing has a more dramatic story to tell, so I get that, but. Again, maybe it's because this is what I focus on, but I was kind of surprised, like you guys said, like there had not been a book like this done on him. 
Partially, it's because I think he wouldn't have wanted a book like this. Yeah, yeah. He was so in the 1950s, early 1950s, after the publication of the Information Theory in 1948, Shannon does become the sort of one of the faces of American science. Right. Right. Yeah. He's given a a profile and he's he's put on a list of the you know America's most prominent scientists, which includes Watson and Crick and Richard Feynman and others. Um, He is given a spread in Vogue magazine. He appears on television. He appears in promotional videos for Bell Labs. So he has his moment in the sun. What he does that's different than other people is he doesn't continue to ride that wave of fame and success. Mm-hmm. What he decides is he's just got other interests and he wants to pursue his interests with, irrespective of how much fame or fortune they'll bring him. So in a way, part of the reason for Shannon's anonymity, relative anonymity, let's say, is that he would have preferred it this way. He wanted to continue to be able to do the things that interested him most. He wasn't interested in becoming famous. He became wealthy, but almost by accident, just being on the ground floor of a bunch of tech companies. He wasn't, you know, somebody who went out and bought ostentatious things, houses, etc. Um, he was somebody who preferred his kind of privacy in his private life. So part of the reason there's not a biography is just because, you know, uh, heck, it took us three years to get the Shannon family to start talking to us. Hmm. And that was three years of patiently sending them information, making sure they knew we were, you know, operating in good faith, that we were going to really do our research. It took that amount of time for us to finally get them to talk to us on the record. And so they, they like their father, just, just didn't, you know, want to be, you know, famous. Um, it's also the case that this is a biography where the drama is in the discovery of ideas. There's not a lot of drama in Claude Shannon's yeah, life. There's yeah. no great, you know, moment. And so... When you don't have that, no one's writing newspaper stories about, you know, the latest and greatest uh, creation from Claude Shannon after a certain point in his life. Um, we, we had to make, we had to take what was available to us and turn those stories into dramatic stories of discovery, which they are. And so that's part of the reason why I think he isn't as well known as At the risk of others. putting in my own two cents here, but I mean, you know, like, when you read like histories of like uh, the, the birth of the atomic bomb and things like that, like people at the time in the forties, fifties, and sixties thought that like, well, this is where the future is going, and we'll you know have space exploration and uh, atomics will power everything and things like that. And the way that the modern world has actually turned out is that ideas like information theory have proven to be way more impactful in the modern world than atomics and there's no flying cars as Peter Thiel says and things like that and so it's it's sort of just this process of realizing that the things that even if they were recognized like Shannon's ideas were recognized at the time in the 50s and 60s they weren't recognized as no this is the stuff that is what the modern world is going to be built off more than physics and other not that they're not important yeah that's just a theory that I'm yeah, it's it's funny because I read an article about the, the 50th anniversary of 2001: A Space Odyssey mm-hmm. uh, a couple of weeks ago, which is just one of my all-time favorites. And one thing the person in the article was observing was that if you saw this movie 50 years ago, again, like you said, you thought the future was in expeditions to Jupiter. Well, right. it turns out the characters are also carrying around these little handheld computers. Right. Right. Uh, it yeah. turns out the future was those little handheld computers. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I'm not sure if uh, you know Kubrick and Clark even thought about it, but it, it was Shannon's advances that made it possible for those little handheld computers to do what they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, um, it, it, it's exciting. It's a little bit scary to think about uh, that the course that scientific and technological process uh, progress takes is so difficult to anticipate beforehand. That's why it's exciting. That's why it's progress. That's why it's um, unpredictable. If we could predict it, it would have happened already. But the fact that uh, the, the most 
influential thing to come out of that period, like you said, was not um, uh, was not necessarily the atomic bomb, but it was Shannon's uh, two-part paper published in the Bell System Technical Journal in 1948. Um, that, I think, speaks to what's going on now. It speaks to the fact that uh, if you ask someone what is the most important work being done at the frontiers of uh, um, biophysics or technology mm -hmm. or computer mm -hmm. science, um, uh, it would be really hard to say. You probably couldn't say except, except in retrospect. I think that's exciting because uh, it, it lends a degree of unpredictability to the future. But it's also a little bit scary because uh, it's, it's the same kind of unpredictability. It's the uncertainty of knowing where these things are going to be going. Um, but it also speaks to the fact that someone like Shannon, who was able to uh, have the free time to do innovative work, was able to bring together fields that people had not previously associated, was able to um, let his mind wander in a way that maybe some of his more literal-minded colleagues wouldn't. Uh, those are the kind of people that, even if we can't predict what they're going to produce, tend to be the kind of people that produce the uh, groundbreaking innovations. Um, and I think there's something to be said in Shannon's life, not just for uh, the stories of discovery and for the moments of his breakthroughs, but also for the kind of life in which those breakthroughs are, or are more likely to occur. Couple quick questions just about the process of this book. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, your, your previous book was on uh, ancient Roman history. Mm -hmm. So um, how do you guys come to want to write a book about Claude Shannon? <laughs> yeah, we, um, we read a really wonderful book called The Idea Factory, mm -hmm. uh, which was a narrative history of Bell Laboratories um, by John Gertner. It's a really wonderful book. And there are a number of figures. He, he traces the history of Bell Labs through the story of, uh, I think, about eight consequential figures. And one of those figures is Claude Shannon. And when you read it, you're just, at least we were, left wanting more. You're like, who is this guy who is a unicycler and a juggler and also, you know, one of the 20th century's great mathematical theorists and also a stock picker and, you know. Um, so I just went out and, and looked for a biography. I assumed, candidly, I assumed there would be one. I went on Amazon mm -hmm. assuming there would be one. And there were a couple of books Kind of connect where Shannon's a figure connected to him, like the information. Yeah, yeah the information right. by James Click, which is a right. one, I mean, a masterwork, yeah. right? But it's not a biography. Yeah, and there is something about scientific biography in particular, where you see how the character of, of their work traces or has origins in some elements of their lives, and I always think there's value in understanding that, right? Um, and so we just we we pitched it, and uh, you know Simon and Schuster liked the idea. And that's how, it, that's how it all came to be. But it was, it was very organic in the sense that uh, neither Rob nor I are mathematicians. We're not engineers. Mm -hmm. So when we were approaching this project, it was as beginners. It was as people who would have to have, sit down with mathematicians and engineers and have them explain things to us. We sent drafts of our chapters to the relevant people to make sure that you know, we hadn't made any, any big errors. And it, I think not being experts helped us hopefully write a book that is accessible to everyone because we do think that it's there's... It's extremely readable, yes. We, we, we think that there's value in having Claude Shannon be a name that's, that's better known and, and for people to understand how he lived and, and how he did his work. Well, speaking of that, and, and he mentioned earlier about the family's cooperation, um, tell me about that. Uh, what, what does his family think of his legacy and, and his fame and maybe resurrecting hmm. both? Well, I think they're tremendously proud of him. I mean, it's hard to have someone like Claude Shannon in your family tree and not be proud of him. I also think, like Jimmy said, that they are a private group of people. Uh, we spoke to his wife, uh, Betty. Um, sadly, she passed away just before the book came out, but yeah. uh, we were told that she was tickled by the idea of it. I don't think she had time to read it, but we were happy that we had a couple of interviews with her and got some quotes from her in the book. Uh, we also spoke with his daughter, Peggy, 
um, who was a great source of information um, for uh, quotations for, for information about Shannon's family life and what he was like as a father and a husband. Um, and of course, she went into academics herself, so he was a great inspiration for her career. Um, not an information theory, but also uh, she became a scientist herself. Um, and uh, from uh, Shannon's other uh, uh, son, Andrew, um, we had access to uh, tremendous photographs of Shannon riding the unicycle around the home, or Shannon working in the toy shop, or um, Shannon as a young man with a bit of a uh, kind of uh, insouciant sort of smirk on his face, mm -hmm. um, with the, uh, the thought that he's come up with something and he's not going to tell you what it is. Uh, but but you, you do get a sense of his personality and who he was and the quirks of his life just by, just by seeing his face and how he posed and carried himself in different uh, situations. And that was stuff we wouldn't have had access to if it wasn't for the family. So I, I think what we get from them is both the sense that his introversion and his desire for privacy and his desire not to make too big a deal of himself um, carried over into the way that they carry themselves. Uh, not that they have anything to hide, just in the sense that they're not out seeking for attention and fame. But mm -hmm. I think they were happy uh, to see a biography that did him justice, that was uh, respectful of, of what an influential and important figure he was in the history of technology, um, and that uh, it speaks to the fact that I think they're, like I said, uh, very, very proud of him, um, very proud of what he means uh, to our world, and, and being able to combine that with a sort of humility that uh, really characterized Claude Shannon. Well, as I said in the intro that I haven't actually recorded yet, but I, uh, the book is called um, A Mind at Play, um, How Claude Shannon Invented the Information Age. Uh, I could not recommend it more highly for listeners of this show, <laughs> because as we're saying, this is the whole world that we're living in now, and this is the guy that, that laid a lot of the foundations. But even if uh, you're not super nerdy or don't feel that you are, it's... it's um, it's very readable, and it's, it's, it's a fun story, even though, you know, like we're saying, there's not the drama in some other stories. It's also a fascinating um, portrait of, of a great mind. So, Well, I, we really appreciate that, and um, we hope people enjoy it and, and get in touch with us. It's been, it's been really great to also just connect with... Shannon had such a wide-ranging career, and so in the course of doing this work, I mean, Rob and I have spoken now to, you know, tinkerers, you know, CEOs... Uh, mathematicians, uh, people who, you know, we met somebody, we connected with somebody who spent a summer working as Shannon's, like, toy shop assistant, essentially, he was a friend of the family's, and Shannon hired him for a summer, so it's been really great to connect with readers who are just inspired by somebody who maintains that kind of uh, amateur interest in so many different things, because I think, you know, we live in a world, I, I joked with Rob, I said, we live in a world in which, like, if I wanted to try to repair a car, like, it would, I would have to, I'd violate the warranty, right? If I tried to open up my iPhone, they wouldn't take it back, right? Mm -hmm. um, Shannon's world was very different, and it's, it is, it, I, I hope it's uh, enjoyable for people to spend time in that kind of tinkering space for a little while, even if it's in, a, in book form. Uh, Jimmy Sony, uh, Rob Goodman, thanks for coming on the show, and... Um sharing uh, his life and, and also a great book. Thanks Thank so very much. much. It's a pleasure. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. 
The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.